Welcome back to Random Trek, the podcast where I, your host, Scott McNulty, talk about a random episode of Star Trek with a non-random guest. My non-random guest today is Matt Gemmel. Matt, thank you for joining me. Thanks so much for the invitation, Scott. How are you? I am great. How are you? Fantastic. Thank you. I believe you are the first Random Trek guest that is not on the same continent as I am, so that's exciting. This is an especial honour then, I suppose. I'm delighted to represent uh, Europe. That's right. Keep representing it strong. Uh, so tell the people a little bit about yourself, if they may not be familiar with you. Uh, I am a freelance writer and uh, aspiring novelist, although most of your listeners, uh, if they've heard my name at all, it will probably be in the context of my previous career as a software developer for Mac and iOS, which is something I left behind a year ago to concentrate on my writing. The episode of Star Trek that we're going to talk about, uh, which I always pretend like people don't know what it is until I announce it, but clearly they've downloaded this podcast, so they've seen the the uh, title, uh, is All Good Things from the Next Generation. In fact, the last Next Generation episode ever, uh, the series finale, uh, in which they talk, and, and this kind of bridges the gap because you've made this big life decision a year ago, and this uh, episode takes part uh, in three different time periods, uh, one of which is the future, 25 years ahead of where the, uh, you know, the current next generation timeline is. Uh, and we see the, the ramifications of many of the crew's uh, decisions in, in the future and how that plays out. So, see, it, it's all thematically uh, going together. I, I love the tie-in there. That was a nice touch. Yeah, see, look, uh, they, don't, they don't give a podcast to just anybody. <laughs> Actually, they do, but <laughs> that, that's besides the point. So let's talk about Star Trek. Um, are you, I know the answer to this question already, are you a Star Trek fan? I'm a massive Star Trek fan and have been for a long number of years. So yes, uh, this is a podcast I was born to appear on. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, and so, which, if you had to pick a series that you liked, well, actually, let me, let me uh, before we get into which series you like, how did you get into Star Trek? Uh, I, I remember seeing uh, the original series a bit on TV when I was uh, a, a boy, um, but The Next Generation was the, the sort of main Star Trek show that was on during my teenage years, and that was very much my... Star Trek. It was on TV at uh, sort of five PM every night, so I, wa- I watched it when I got back in from high school, and that naturally, obviously, fed into DS Nine Voyager and so on. Uh, so I, I, my, my, you know, Star Trek was a, a sort of constant background to my formative years, I guess you would say. What, uh, uh, the same here. So would you say, now I've noticed a trend amongst uh, folks who have been on this podcast, that when I ask them which is their favorite series, they generally pick the one that uh, they first were encountered with or felt the strongest connection, which which makes sense. Uh, so that would lead me to assume that your favorite series is The Next Generation, but perhaps it is not. But what What is your favorite series? Um, I, I, favorite series is can be interpreted more than one way. Um, I, I obviously do have uh, that that feeling that you mentioned that TNG was the one I, I grew up with and I have so many fond memories of. Um, but I mean, if you're talking about the best writing and the, the sort of the most interesting themes and so forth, I think it's generally agreed uh, that. Deep Space Nine is the most sort of sophisticated and accomplished Star Trek in that regard. 
So when I emailed you uh, and asked you to be on the, the program, um, you graciously accepted. And then you were excited, as was I, when this episode was randomly picked uh, because it is arguably – Perhaps the best episode of Star Trek ever, you know, depending on uh, how you rank things and what I mean of the city on the edge of forever. Uh, also widely acclaimed as the best episode of Star Trek ever. This, I think, may be the best or top three TNG episodes. Uh, and then you, you came up with a list of uh, five episodes that you, you uh, thought were the best. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about that. And I know you were thinking about it some more, so... Yeah, I, 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 after we spoke, I, I sat down and had to think about it, and then I realised after five minutes that I was spending too much time thinking about it, so <laughs> I, I just sort of fired down a brief list, and I stopped after I had uh, seven episodes across of across all the, the series, not just TNG. Um, and as I said to you, All Good Things is definitely way up there. It's just such a fantastic story, and it deals with fairly complex plot elements in such a, a sort of effortless, slick and dramatically engaging way. So it's, it's, it's fantastic. But I wouldn't put it right up there at number one. Uh, for me, number one would be a DS9 episode, actually. Mm, I think I know um, which one you're going to say. I, I, I hope we're thinking of the same one. But, for, I mean, for me, in terms of a fabulous story and an absolutely a, a sort of mature, sophisticated adult plot that has, has real repercussions and does the classic Star Trek thing about making us think of, you know, ethics and grey areas and so on. It's got to be in the pale moonlight. Yes. What a fantastic episode. And of course you've got that amazing Vrenak moment as well, that it's a fake! <laughs> Which is, it's a magnificent episode. It's got Garak in it. It's, I, I almost don't want to talk more about it in case anyone that's listening hasn't seen it. You must, you must see that episode. It transcends science fiction. It transcends episodic television. It's a magnificent piece of writing and brilliantly acted as well. Uh, All Good Things would be second. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I had to think a lot about, about third place and... What I've finally decided is actually The Visitor, Deep Space Nine. Now, that's the one where Jake Sisko, we see him through uh, several different time periods again. Mm -hmm. uh, and his father has been sort of trapped in subspace or something like that and only reappears every few years. And eventually, you know, Jake has his writing career. And then I think eventually he has to sort of sacrifice himself to reset time and his father comes back. Uh, and it was just such an incredibly poignant episode. I remember uh, crying when I saw it, just because of the, the just the emotional resonance, the sort of longing of the son, the father only getting to sort of dip back into his son's life every few years. Very powerful episode. The one that I was juggling that with is, of course, the best of both worlds. TNG, which is a sort of big screen action movie. It's it's when Picard obviously becomes Lucutus of Borg. Uh, it's got the you know it's Commander Shelby and all the friction with Riker. It's magnificent. It's a it's a great TV movie. Yeah, that's that's one of my favorites as well. And in fact, I have a bust of Locutus of Borg uh, on my shelf here because I'm a giant nerd. Uh, Stare, staring at you the whole time as you record the Judging podcast. me silently. Yep. <laughs> so that, that's been four, hasn't it? That has, yes. Uh, after that, it's it's all my favourite little odd 
TNG episodes. I, I, I know that you already did Measure of a Man on the mm-hmm. show, which is a great episode. I also love Yesterday's Enterprise. Oh, uh, but honestly, in, in fifth place, I, I bet no one else would pick this one. It's an episode called Schisms. And this is the one where a whole bunch of different crew members start having these these sort of phobic responses to innocuous objects. Like Riker sits down in the, at the ops console and he feels trapped and Worf's getting his hair cut and he sort of pushes the scissors away. I'm sure you remember the episode. Yes. And, I mean, it's a, it's a relatively minor standalone episode. It doesn't have any sort of large story arc impact, but there is this particular scene that has, has stayed with me all of these years. And wh- what happens is that, obviously, people are having all these strange sort of fears, so they go and talk to Councillor Troy, as you do. That's what she's she, there for. Exactly, exactly. And she realises, you know, there's some, there's some larger thing going on here. So she gets them all together for a wee bit of group therapy. And they end up getting to the holodeck. And they can barely remember what's happening to them, but there's this sense that they've all been somewhere. These experiences are reminding them of some negative event that's happened recently. And they recreate the environment that they all have been in but can't remember. And first it's a table, and then it's a sort of inclined surgical chair with a restraint, and then there's a there's a mechanical arm over the top with a scissors-like thing, hence Worf's response. And then the lights go down, and then there's this clicking from in, in the darkness all around them, and it's an incredibly creepy scene. It's like X Files caliber creepy. You know, you can just imagine that kind of pizzicato violin background music that that they do in the X Files when you know Eugene Toomes squeezes through a ventilation duct or something. It's it's like Elfman like, and it's it really creeped me out. It was a leave the light on night in that particular night after school. So I've I've always loved that episode, and I think I'd put that one in fifth place. That is, I remember that scene in particular being uh, quite impactful. Yes, creepy. very much so. And the it aliens is, that uh, they figure out we're doing this are also look creepy. So yeah, they're kind of like these weird sort of three fingered alien monks shuffling through their dark lab. It's yeah, it's very unsettling. It's very otherworldly, which. Um, I guess that was the thing that, that stayed with me for being a sci-fi show where there's a new alien every single week. Uh, everyone's so human, but these things were so completely alien in motivation and silent. There was no communication. There was no diplomacy. There was no coming to terms. It was just, you know, they were this implacable force snatching our people away and dumping them back and erasing their memories. It's, of course, it's the, the classic alien abduction story. Uh, and yeah, it's very, very powerful. Well, that's what's what else is that the last one on your list? I think that's there's one more. I, 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 no, I mean, I, I stopped after that, after I'd also jotted down yesterday's Enterprise and ah. Measure of a Man. I mean, we could go into stuff like the, the Section 31 stuff, like oh. maybe Inter Arma and Imsilently Guest, DS9. That's a fabulous episode. There's a bunch of Voyager episodes. I love someone to watch over me. You know, we could we could go on all day. We could. I noticed there are no original series episodes on your list. Yeah, it's, it's. I mean, the original series was something that I, I do love to watch every so often, but it was something from my very early childhood, so there, there hasn't really been a time where I've watched it coherently. Mm-hmm. I think starting at the, probably the motion picture, that's when I've got a very con, a sort of continuous and complete sense of everything that goes on. I suppose there's even a chance there might be an original series episode or two I haven't even seen fully through. 
well, there, there are many that aren't worth seeing fully through, so <laughs> you may, uh, especially third season, uh, you can skip them. You can see the same about Enterprise season well, 34 as well, probably. Uh, well, that, that is true. Or even uh, our beloved Next Generation first and second seasons, uh, uh, kind of rocky. Yeah, some of them are a little bit cringe, aren't they? But, they, they are. but uh, you know, once again, they're all Star Trek, and I, I love them all. So we Indeed. did uh, the main incomparable show. We did a, a Star Trek episode draft because Jason Snow loves drafts um, and he makes the rules. Uh, and we had to pick best shows, best episodes. Uh, so I'll just recap the two that I picked because we only got through two because these rounds t- these rounds take forever. Uh, I picked both Deep Space Nine episodes because uh, I just I wanted to pick episodes I thought other people perhaps wouldn't pick. Um, and one I picked was Duet which uh, features uh, a Cardassian coming back to Deep Space Nine, uh, who is, uh, and they're not sure if this Cardassian is a notorious war criminal or not, uh, and they have to figure it out. And it has, uh, it's one of these episodes where it doesn't really matter that they're on a, uh, a space station. It's just a greatly acted uh, episode with lots of dialogue and some intense scenes. Uh, and it's, I think, it is a first season Deep Space Nine episode. So, it's uh, a wonderful episode. I love it. Is it Goldar Heel or something? Or am I maybe misremembering that? But uh, yeah, uh, like and that, yeah. and the scenes between him and and, and Kira, particularly at the end when his, his identity sort of comes out. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh yeah, wonderful, excellent episode. I should have I should have probably included that one as well. <laughs> well, there are no wrong answers, Matt. Don't worry. Mm. And another, the other one is one that is a lot of fun, uh, and it's Deep Space Nine, Trials and Tribulations, uh, in which the Deep Space Nine oh, featuring yes. uh, time travel, Deep Space Nine crew have to go back in time uh, for a variety of reasons to, to help Captain Kirk uh, figure out or not be destroyed by a bomb that's hidden in a tribble. Uh, it's a fantastic, and it, you know, of course, it crosses over with the original series episode, uh, The Trouble with Tribbles. Which it's is amazing. It's, you, you know, at, at university, in, in my during my computing science degree, we obviously had classes on uh, uh, graphics processing and so on. And one of the examples they used was the compositing, where they, you know, after the bar brawl on the station, where they insert uh, Bashir and O'Brien into the <laughs> yes. lineup in front of Kirk, where he's telling everyone off. Yeah, it's, it's an amazing episode, and to see, you know, the, the cute little end scene for Cisco goes up to the bridge and says it's been an honor serving with Captain Kirk. That's just lovely fan service. Yes, it's. It, I think the whole episode really is fan service, uh, but they do it in such a way uh, they, that it, it makes sense of some things that happen in the original episode that doesn't make it too much sense. They have a lot of fun with uh, you know dressing up in the, the old uniforms. Uh, there's a lot of fun with Dax. Uh, there's a particular episode where she's like, uh, uh, or scene where she's looking at uh, Kirk and Spock, and she says he's even he's more handsome in person than I thought he would be. And uh, Cisco's like, well, Captain Kirk had quite the reputation. And she says, uh, I was talking about Spock. Uh, I, I remember that. Yeah. Uh, so all around, great episodes. So watch all of those episodes. Uh, and the the episode that we're going to talk about, uh, all good things, is also a fantastic episode. So if you haven't. There are some people who listen to Random Trek, and I love everyone who listens to Random Trek, uh, but they listen to the podcast without watching the episode of which we're talking about. And for some episodes of Star Trek that we're talking about, I can understand that impulse. Uh, but all good things, you really should, if you haven't seen it and uh, you're listening to this podcast, you should pause the podcast, 
go find yourself a copy of All Good Things. It's available in streaming uh, and Blu-ray, which is what I watched it on. It uh, looks fantastic. Watch the episode and then come back and listen uh, because it's a great episode of Star Trek. And uh, I wouldn't want to ruin anything because it has a bunch uh, some some twists and turns in it. Uh, and it's probably best to go uh, into it not knowing what's going to happen. So Definitely. Now that that's been dealt with, we can we can delve into uh, all good things. Uh, but let's talk about Q because Q. Now that the people who haven't uh, seen the episode are gone, we can talk about some spoilery things. Q plays a big part in this episode, uh, as he did in the first episode of the Next Generation, mm-hmm. and and subsequent episodes in between. Uh, and for those of you who don't know who Q is, uh, I'm not sure why you're listening to this podcast, but Q is this uh, omnipotent being that's part of the Q continuum, uh, and he is basically uh, Captain Picard's kind of foil in many ways, and he is obsessed with the human race and with Captain Picard in particular for for no particular reason. Uh, I guess, you know, it just gets boring being all-powerful and all-knowing, so you need to amuse yourself somehow. Uh, and, and Captain Picard and the crew of the Enterprise have the luck of being uh, Q's play toy every once in a while. Well, he, he said at one point he, he thinks sometimes the only reason he keeps taunting them is because he wants to hear these wonderful speeches that Picard gives. <laughs> and it, he does give Picard many opportunities to uh, give some, some monologues. So how, how do you feel about Q as a character? Um, it's, it's obviously a wonderful character, so so much larger than life, and uh, has the everything from the pantomime villain to the observer of humanity to the the sort of trickster god Loki character. But then there's also the redemption that periodically comes through. Usually, when Q has either you know met his match, sometimes intellectually or in terms of debating the ethics of a situation. Um, and you know that kind of really rounds out the character and sort of sort of smooths off its rough edges because it was drawn in very very broad strokes in Encounter at Farpoint, the you know the the, the double length pilot of uh, Next Generation in season one, and this is very much all good things is the bookend for that, and we we do sort of go back to his court in this episode a couple of times, but the character has changed substantially, and we're, we we sort of understand that that's as much because of his encounters with humanity as represented by the the crew of the Enterprise as anything else. And in fact, in this episode, he he pretty much is uh, the the, the vehicle by which Picard is able to solve the the problem, which is, you know, the fate of, of humanity and the entire Alpha Quadrant, of course, as is only fitting for a season and series finale. So he's he's not the the taunter all of the time in this case. He's uh, in some ways a sort of a sort of sidekick facilitator, <laughs> Deus Ex Machina kind of construct, uh, which is is wonderful. I mean, you you actually end this episode with a kind of grudging affection for the character, but that was that was really always my feeling about Q. You're meant to you're meant to hate him as the antagonist, but only so much. You're always sort of secretly smiling behind your hand thinking this guy's wonderful. It's true. He is a, he is like you said, he's a trickster. So you know they're they're lovable but they cause a lot of trouble. Uh, and in this episode in particular you get the so the Q we find out through a bunch of uh, the episode that the Q continuum uh, has decided that humanity has not lived up to its potential. And so 
uh, it must be destroyed. Uh, of course, in, in the way of the Q continuum, it will not destroy humanity. It will allow humanity to destroy itself. Um, uh, in, and I guess they you know, have set up the parameters in which this will happen. And in particular, let Captain Picard destroy humanity uh, unwittingly. But Q, being Q, can't help but in, interject himself into this process and, and kind of help Picard a little uh, and figuring out how to solve this problem. That, he, he, uh, he can't help but turn it into a game of some kind, at it, least. Right, for his own amusement. And uh, he doesn't want uh, the, the rest of the continuing messing up his playthings. I think he feels a little bit of um, ownership over the human race. Uh, even as, you know, he half the time he spends it mocking the human race. Uh, but the other half of the time, you kind of get the sense that he's a little bit jealous of the fact that uh, humanity doesn't know everything and can be discovering all this stuff for the first time, uh, whereas he just he knows everything, right? So he has yeah, his, no his surprises. Biggest, his biggest problem is that he's bored, and and I mean that comes out explicitly in a few of the acute episodes. And humanity mm-hmm. is his way of sort of, you know, dumbing down by proxy, and uh, you know, experiencing again some of the wonder and danger of the universe, I suppose. And I'm a fan of that episode, which name I cannot remember, uh, that he becomes a human uh, for briefly. Uh, and he has that wonderful where the, 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 the problem in the episode is that they have to move a moon because it's going to fall into a planet or something. And he says, well, just change the change gravitational, the gravitational constant, constant of the universe. Yes, and and right. George is like, uh, I don't think we could do that. <laughs> Yeah, that's beyond our capability. Uh, that's right. Uh, so yeah, I'm a big fan of Q, uh, but I know a lot of people find it annoying because he could do whatever, right? So he just kind of shows up, messes everything up, or if the writers can't figure out a way to solve something, uh, Q did it. Uh, so it can feel like a cheat, but I feel like, well, especially in this episode, he is used probably to his highest and most effective use uh, in the entire series, uh, just because, you know, we've had... And that's the beauty of the series finale, right? We've had seven years, uh, so many episodes of getting to know these characters, knowing their backstories, seeing their growth, if if limited growth, but still growth, uh, just because uh, at the time, you know, The Next Generation was very episodic. Not many arcs that uh, we see in uh, Deep Space Nine or, and more current contemporary shows nowadays. Mm. Um, so the, the limits to how much the characters could grow uh is uh there is a limit there but uh i feel like especially you know you see data in in the 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 past time frame and in the future time frame and you can see that he's changed a lot uh, um, oh indeed he's probably i mean he's surely one of the only characters that actually div- that displays substantial sort of personal and dramatic growth uh, in the whole of Next Generation, he's he's the classic character, ironically, who grows, uh, you know, to a, a substantial degree, um, mm-hmm. despite being just a machine. That's true, because he wants to be a real boy, as we all know. That's it, that's it, the Pinocchio thing. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's wonderful, because they, they play with that. Um, as you say, we know exactly who these characters are, and, uh, you know, we can just sort of set them up and... and experience this fantastically plotted story without having to spend any time on external events or what their motivations are and it is particularly enjoyable because we you know we see data still back in that 
season one incredibly tight jumpsuit thing with the extra stripes along the collar and mm-hmm. he's babbling and he's missing the joke and he's asking for definitions of you know what how did burning the midnight oil um become an, an idiom and then he's sort of regular still a bit robotic but earnestly exploring his what he calls his humanity in season seven and then by 25 years later whatever star date it is he's you know he's chatting away and he's using his contractions and he's smiling and he's yeah. petting cats and and he's got his grey hair and so on and he's every inch the, the sort of it's a Cambridge professor he is at that time so it's, it's it's wonderful to see that progression and I love the fact that uh, Data in uh, 25 years becomes a crazy cat android and his his uh, house is full of like 18 cats uh, I love I just find that very amusing um you so, went from just spot to right, an exactly. room full of them. Yeah. You can't stop. <laughs> uh, and, and this episode in particular, it is interesting. I mean, I think the the joy of any Star Trek series is seeing the characters, uh, the the main characters, you know, building their relationships and having friendships, uh, and then you know, solving problems together. And this episode clearly is just all about that friendship and it's so interesting that they chose to to jump between three time periods because we get the first time period which is right uh before the encounter at farpoint so picard is new and he's showing up in the enterprise and nobody really knows each other um but picard is jumping through time so he has he has his memories uh well as the episode progresses he begins to remember more and more through his jumps so he has feelings and strong bonds to these people but these people have never met him before Mm. Uh, so they are following his inexplicable orders uh, because they are good starfleet officers Uh, whereas you go through the present and they all the present in this episode they they all know each other they have had seven years of serving on the enterprise so when captain picard says uh you know i i'm traveling through time there's a little hesitation to think well you know you haven't left the ship we don't know what's going on but we trust you because we know you you're jean-luc picard uh so we will figure out what's going on and then in the future we get uh captain picard suffering from a neurological illness which causes hallucinations so uh all of his friends are kind of like yeah you're probably not jumping through time uh but you are time time to go back to bed right exactly and there are a lot of uh suggesting that captain car go back to bed um which is amusing uh but but they're like well you're you're jean-luc picard if this was anyone else who had suffering from a neurological disease and was telling me they were jumping through time uh, and that we had to save the the quadrants um, and, and, in fact, humanity itself. Uh, we think they're crazy. And we kind of think you might be crazy, but you're Jean-Luc Picard. So we're, we're based on our friendship and who you are. We're going to help you out and do a lot exactly. of crazy things. Yeah, it's all about that sort of loyalty and the, the, the developing of the interpersonal dynamic. And, uh, I mean, at the end of the series is a wonderful time to reaffirm that as a, a send-off because of course the viewer at that point hopefully they've they've watched the entire sort of seven years right the way through and they feel as much a, a, a part of that group as the characters they see on screen and it's very very touching and and impactful to see especially the future what's happened to these characters 25 years into the future you know because you always want whenever a series ends at least i do i don't know if other people feel this way probably or or when I read a particularly good book that's like a standalone book, I think, 
what what happened to these characters when the story is done? Uh, and so we get at least a glimpse uh, into a possibility that happens. So that's always interesting. Indeed, uh, and it leaves quite a lot to be desired. It does. It does not turn out well for, for many of them. Um, and interestingly, we, I don't usually talk a lot about production stuff and, you know, real world things that are happening. Um, but uh, randomly this episode was chosen and randomly – well, not randomly, but it, it coincided with the season seven of The Next Generation coming out on Blu-ray. Uh, so they had uh, – this episode obviously is the one where they give the big treatment to. Uh, so there's a bunch of uh, commentary and extra stuff on the Blu-ray. So I watched some of the, the interviews with Ron Moore and everybody um, who and the crew who were talking about this episode. And while you know it was the end of the series, so it was a sad time uh, for fans and for for the crew. They were filming uh, Generations, which is the the movie, at the same time as they were filming mm. this. That's so right. they didn't have. Uh, you know, as cast members, it didn't hit them until the end of uh, their filming of Generations that, you know, this was over. Um, so I just thought that was a, the, an interesting fun fact uh, of timing-wise. Yeah. Apparently, the, the, the sort of moments on set where they were confusing the scripts for <laughs> the Generations motion picture and this double episode. Uh, the one thing that I th- they did do, I think, deliberately to sort of underline the idea that it was a, a big transition was... That the final scene uh, of the show, uh, the the poker game, obviously, was unusually the final scene shot for the episode, just to sort of draw a line mm-hmm. under the the series before they moved on to the motion picture fully. And I ca- I could not think. I mean, I know we're jumping around, much like you jump around in time in this episode. Exactly. Uh, but that that final scene is is perfect. I think. Because it's, you know, and once again, this this plays on your familiarity with these characters. And we know for episode after episode that the bridge crew get together and they have a little game of poker that they do, right? Um, and while they're all friends, uh, there's some camaraderie uh, with the people who everyone other than Captain Picard. Because Captain Picard is Captain Picard. He's in charge. He's a commanding officer. Uh, he doesn't really... Uh, brook a lot of hijinks. Uh, he's no, approachable, he's, but he's he not cho- like. But he chooses to sort of be removed in order to remain that exactly, sort of to retain that kind of that dignity of command thing that he has. He's their friend, but he's not their buddy, right? Mm, um, yeah. At least when he is Captain Picard. When he's Jean Luc Picard, who knows? But at the end of this episode, they're all playing uh, poker, uh, and in walks Captain Picard. And there's a funny moment where they all kind of look at each other, and then uh, Riker says, uh, "Is everything all right, Captain?" Because they can only th- the only reason Captain Picard would come uh, to this room at this particular point is because something wrong has happened, and he needs yes. their help. Q uh, is back or something, like right? That. <laughs> and so that great, our, our poker game is cut short. But he's like, "No, no, I just wanted to see if I could maybe uh, join the game." Uh, and of course, he is warmly welcomed and uh, allowed to deal deal the game. And uh, he ends the the show by saying, "You know, the sky's the limit." The sky's uh, the limit. Yeah. No, it's it's a it's a beautiful little, very efficient, concise scene. Really tightly shot. Most of the time, it's just uh, close up on sort of Picard's face mm-hmm. um, as he does the dealing and looks around the table. And there's only a couple of uh, you know cut out reaction shots. I think there's. Uh, it goes to Beverly, it goes to Troy um, but you get a lot of emotion out of it so the viewer can fill in everything that we've sort of 
built up and experienced over the last seven years about how these characters feel about each other without actually needing to show it. Very, very short runtime scene, but it conveys an awful lot of emotion. Yes, it's fantastic. And so watching all this feature uh, stuff about this episode, uh, I found out that they wrote the whole thing in like three weeks, which which boggles my mind. I guess that's probably normal for television because you need to pump out all these scripts because uh, you have a lot of episodes that you need to fill your season. Um, but getting something this nuanced and uh, – you know, hitting because you know, ending a, a series, especially a, such a beloved series as uh, Star Trek: The Next Generation, is not not an easy task, right? So there are lots of things you kind of have to do, uh, notes that you want to hit, and you want to make sure you don't mess up any kind of uh, fan feelings that people have for these these actors, and you don't want to screw up what is a, been a great. Yeah, you know, it's, show by it's a tall order, a very a sort of very intimidating thing to do, but my God, they certainly did it. I think um, Brandon Braga feels that it's, uh, his, I think, his favourite TNG script that he wrote. And I, I'd be hard-pressed to argue with that. Yeah, I can't. I, I could not think of a better way that they could have ended this this show. Um, and so so I, I'm pleased with it. And uh, I'm sure that they're, they're very happy to hear that I am pleased with it. Um, there are a couple of scenes that I watched this with my wife, uh, who had never seen it before, um, and so it, the, the show opens with um, Deanna Troy and Worf coming out of the holodeck and obviously having some kind of like little romantic interlude there. Mm-hmm. Um, and Marisa, who's my wife, turned to me and said, this isn't right. They shouldn't – they aren't the two that should be together. And I was like, well, they were trying to put Troy and Worf together for some reason uh, in the later seasons. Uh, so uh, to- Worf doesn't really have a whole lot of luck in the love department. He does not. Uh, although until uh, Deep Space Nine, he finds his his lovely lady. Although, yeah, but we know how that ends. That's um, true. But uh, all good things, as they say. <laughs> indeed, indeed. And so, yeah, so there's some interesting uh, kind of play between you know Worf and Troy are are uh, trying exploring their relationship and but worrying uh, about Riker as well. Yes. Worrying about how Riker feels about it. How Riker feels about it. And you think, well, Troy is like. So there's a line where. Uh, Troy's like, oh, well, we'll go to the holodeck again and I'll show you uh, some beach on Beta Z or something like that. And Worf says, well, before we do that, I really want to talk to Commander Riker. Uh, and and Deanna's like, oh, is he going to join us? Uh, which I thought was very funny. Uh, I've generally, I mean, I don't dislike Deanna. They don't really make her do much as a character generally. She's just kind of hanging out there. Uh, so whenever she, her character has uh, a reaction or a, a quip, I, I particularly enjoy it because I feel like she was underutilized for most of... Uh, yeah, definitely, definitely. Although they got better towards the end, particularly yes. in the sort of seventh season. Mm-hmm. And it was funny, I mean, staying on the topic of Deanna Troy, uh, when you go back, when they hop back to the, uh, before the encounter at Farpoint, uh, you get the, of course, the first season uniforms, uh, and Deanna's wearing her little weird uh, mini skirts one-lit thing. <laughs> yeah, that bizarre thing, and then the hair oh, as the well. Hair. That was yeah. not good. <laughs> but that yes, was it's, not her it's, a, it's an odd get-up. It, it is. Why, why they did that to her, I don't understand, but... That's another piece of kind of sort of foreshadowing and bookending as well, because they make a point of having her... Um, I think this was cut from some versions of the episode, but in the, the, the full uncut one, there's a scene where she tells Picard, just so you know, mm-hmm. I had a prior relationship with Commander Riker. It's not going to be a problem, but, you know, it, it happened. And Picard, at that point, 
has knowledge of the various timelines that he's hopping through. And so he's like, uh, don't worry. It's not going to be a problem. Uh, Pretty sure it's going to turn out okay. I think everything will be fine. Although we find out in the future that Deanna Troy is dead. So, uh, although the future never happens. So she is not, I, I guess, uh, actually dead. But in this episode, in the frame of reference of this episode, she is dead in the future timeline. Uh, yes, very traumatic. But we, you know, we know what happens in Star Trek Nemesis. So obviously, that future never came to pass. That's right. Uh, and so they they pick up they they have this kind of little chemistry with Troy and Worf, who I don't think really actually have chemistry, but whatever. Uh, and and that sets up Riker, uh, who there's a scene where they're you know they're going to have to ignite the midnight petroleum and uh, work hard on some stuff. And uh, Riker's like, oh, sounds like we're going to be working late. Diana, would you like to get some dinner? And she says, well, uh, no, I already have plans. And then she looks at Worf, and then Riker looks at Worf, and he frowns. Uh, well, actually, he doesn't frown, but he's like, oh, okay. And you think, well, see, look, he's an adult. He's okay with, you, you know, Deanna Troy going out with Worf. He's cool with it. But then, then they go into the bridge, mm-hmm. and he sort of basically pouts like a little child. <laughs> he so does. So much so that he doesn't listen to what Picard says for, like, several sentences. I know, and Picard is explaining something very important. He says, he's like, you know, when these time jumps happen, I'm disoriented, so, you know... You need to, you need to jump in and take command if I'm, not, if I'm looking a bit vacant. And, of mm. course, Riker himself is staring off into space thinking, oh, he stole my girlfriend. That's right, that damn wharf I'd challenge him to a fight if I thought I could win. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's interesting that they are, they're, they're picking... And then, of course... Probably the best way for us to talk about this episode, I think, is just talking about the characters and what happens. Because the plot is a little complicated. We could talk about that later. Um, but I think it's really all about the characters. The plot is as often uh, a device for us to see these interactions with the characters. Yes, uh, yes. And so future Riker, based on the fact that uh, Worf and Deanna uh, had this little a couple of dates, uh, is uh, an admiral which is hooray for him, has lots of gray hair in his beard. And, a, bit, uh, a bitter, bitter admiral. But well. he's, he's very, very bitter. All because, uh, I guess, he never reunited with Deanna. And he blames Worf, and Worf is not happy with him uh, because Worf thinks Riker kind of uh, derailed his own chance with Deanna, and now Deanna's dead, and nobody has a chance with her. Uh, and so they're all, both of them are unhappy, bitter men. Um, and they they both really need a bloody good slap across the face because that's a ridiculous <laughs> way for grown men to behave. It is true, and they they come to an agreement. Uh, you know, they're they're in ten forward in the future timeline with uh, Beverly and Jordy and Data and uh, Riker. They're at a table, and Worf is kind of sulking at uh, the, bar at the bar by himself, yeah. uh, and they're all like, "What the hell, Riker? When are you and Worf gonna make up? This is ridiculous." And Riker's like, well, we haven't made up for 20 years, so we probably won't ever do it. Uh, and then a, a disoriented Captain Picard comes on to uh, the... the in, t- in his pajamas, in his in pajamas. His, he he spends a lot of time Which is another kind of, yeah, another reflection, because we first see him in his pajamas, and indeed, before the poker scene, we last see him in his pajamas as well. <laughs> <laughs> and quite interesting pajamas uh, Captain Picard wears. They're quite kind of revealing pajamas in the present day season seven yes. time period. It's basically just a sort of mini robe thing. 
Yes, with like a, a V-cut. Um, Very deeply V-cut, so we can show off his manly chest here. That's right. Uh, it was an odd choice. You know, the, people wear weird things when they sleep in the future, is what I've uh, determined from Star Trek. And Captain Picard, in general, uh, just to, to get off topic, though, he has a lot of weird little outfits that he wears when he's not in his uniform. So I think possibly one of the reasons Jean-Luc Picard went into Starfleet was so that he did not have to think about what he wore because uh, exactly a uniform someone else will decide for me and that's it you know very much a public school boy who's used to not having to worry about whether his jeans are cool enough <laughs> exactly so when he doesn't have to wear his uniform he just we- wears the weirdest things you could think of which uh, in the future is pretty damn weird because their day clothes are essentially our pajamas so their pajamas and leisure clothes have to be pretty extreme exactly i'd never thought about that this is blowing my mind. This episode is just uh, deep on so many levels. I had no idea. It just goes deeper and deeper. It does every time. You look, uh, it's Q all the way down. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and so Cap- let- let's talk about Captain Picard in this episode because he is the central character, uh, as he is in many episodes, um, because he's the captain, obviously. And uh, it doesn't hurt that Patrick Stewart is a fantastic actor. Uh, not that the rest of the crew is a, are, are slouches, but... Um, he does have a lot of great scenes in this one. Um, yes. Although my favourite scene, um, I, I always tell people this, and I say people mostly meaning my poor wife, um, <laughs> my favourite scene in terms of Patrick Stewart acting in this is a completely innocuous scene that you would you would blink and totally miss and not even remember. And it is right after, uh, at the very start, where he appears in the corridor in his pyjamas. And, you know, he's, well, what's the date? What's the date? Etc. Etc. Then they do the title card. And then he's sitting with Deanna in his quarters and having a cup, a cup of tea. And he's sort of trying to tell her and she's trying to interrogate him about what you know he experienced and whether or not it's just a dream. I'm sure you remember seeing that. Mm-hmm. I think I know um, what you're going to say. And it's just he does it so incredibly well. Just that sense of frustrated confusion. And the thing we've all experienced in the morning where the more you wake up, the more a dream slips away from you. And you knew you were doing something and you knew there was a person, but you can't remember their face. You can't remember where you were. And particularly if it's a, if it's a dream that affected you emotionally, or in this case, an experience that he thinks is actually important, you need to convey that to the other person against their natural disbelief that you were just having a dream. But you can't because it's all sliding away. And just, he absolutely fully commits to the scene. And you utterly, utterly believe that this is a man having that very frustrated sense of, you know, the kind of loss of cohesion of the memory that few minutes before he had, you know, completely concrete. And it's so totally believable. And, it, I mean, it struck me way more than any of the more classic, uh, you know, dramatic parts of the episode where it's on the bridge or wherever. He doesn't have his best line of the episode in that scene, certainly. I mean, his best line of this episode is probably my favourite Picard line in all of Star Trek. But it's a, it's a lovely, brilliant piece of acting. And I love it. There's a, a particularly even a tinier moment in that scene that I love. And he's talking about, you know, I was doing something with my hands and he kind of almost pantomimes slightly. Uh, like you, yeah, he, he's got he's, like hands clawed up and yeah, he's, he's looking down at them. Yeah. He was fiddling with uh, vines. Uh, yeah, tying up the vines in the future. So that, And that's just thought, oh, he's such a great actor. Um, he's, he's a professional. He really does, he does do the work, doesn't he? 
he, he knows what he's doing. He's going places, that Patrick Stewart. Mark my yeah. words. <laughs> he's got a future in entertainment, I think. I think so. I think he's proven himself there, yes. And so he has lots of great scenes. And then so and it's also fascinating to look at uh Captain Picard has um you know, grown a little bit uh, too, because the first season, obviously, the actors themselves were also not as uh, comfortable in their roles. Um, and I'm sure Patrick Stewart made a choice to kind of act Jean Luc Picard as, you know, I, I don't know if he's stuffy, but he's certainly proper, right? Uh, and he's he he's always proper. He's he, that's been a through line, but it's kind of a little more relaxed as the seasons go. Uh, yeah, so he was he, very sort of rigid, and mm-hmm. it, it, I, he didn't really have the feel of the character, I guess, because the writers didn't have the feel of right. the character. So he had a kind of peacocky sort of quality, mm-hmm. um, where he was always straightening about and making a big point of being Captain Picard. Whereas that settles down to just that quiet kind of robustness that you you get in the later season. So yeah, and so it's it's fun to revisit that and and see him kind of you know doing that a little bit in the in the in the past timelines uh, before he realizes you know gets all his uh, memories of the various timelines, uh, and then it's really fun to see him in the future because he is uh, this old man who has this this this, this neurological disease and. Uh, he is very frustrated that people aren't believing him, that he's, you know, hopping through time and that there's, there's this, this thing that he needs to, to do, but he can't really explain it. And everybody thinks, well, uh, when was the last time you went to see your doctor? Uh, yeah. and it's, you- it's a wonderful picture of that sort of, that classic, you know, the, the dementia or, mm-hmm. or Alzheimer's kind of frustration that, that so many older people really do experience. And he, I mean, he does do it pretty well. Well, he still has his moments of classic Picard intensity. Yes. Even as the old man, uh, the best one of which is when, uh, for me, when he's on the bridge of the Pasteur and they've managed to contact Governor Worf and they're trying to negotiate oh, to get yes. permission to enter what was the neutral zone. And Worf sort of makes this little sort of snide, snippy remark about, you know, you always use your knowledge of claim on honour to get me to do what you want. And he just kind of explodes with energy. Um, he says it because it always works, Worf! You know, and it, it, it's just, just it's, it's a sparkle to his eye again. And you can, you can see um, Beverly Gates McFadden kind of turning and watching this performance as he's kind of hanging off the console towards the front of the bridge, pointing his finger at the view screen. It's fantastic. And that's that's a great uh, thing that plays once again into their you know their years of interactions and how you know Captain Picard is always using the same tactic with Worf about honor and loyalty because that is so integral to the character of Worf. Worf without honor and loyalty is not Worf at all, right? So uh, mm-hmm. it's fun to and see, and particularly the interplay between um, Picard and Worf when you know that. Um, you know, Patrick Stewart and Michael Dorn were the, the sort of great, the quotas of Shakespeare on the set. You know, they would duel uh, in terms of, the, you know, their knowledge of Shakespeare. So they're, they're, they're constantly trying to outdo each other, which is difficult for Michael Worf, uh, sorry, Michael, 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 Worf, <laughs> Michael Dorn, because he has to play Worf as, you know, a quite a, a sort of a, a, a controlled kind of sort of seething under the surface kind of character. He's he's all rigid shoulders and pent up energy. Uh, but no, it, it was it was just great to see that because you can imagine exactly how Dorn was responding to it when he you know did the reaction shots for the view screen. <laughs> and yeah, well, well, let's talk about Worf and in, in his his journey in this episode. Oh, can I say can I say one more thing about Picard? Absolutely. 
just what I said earlier on, the best quotes. Um, oh, yes. Which is honestly my... I mean, there are obviously so many fabulous Picard speeches through the next mm-hmm. generation, all the, you know, personal truth, and you don't deserve to wear that uniform and all that kind of thing. But this is just the most silly, sci-fi, perfectly quirky Star Trek Picard quote uh, for me, um, which is... Mr. Nisa, you're a clever man in any time period. <laughs> it's just such a ridiculous quote that it works perfectly in context. And the way he delivers it with that sort of beaming pride, looking down as Data sitting on his wee chair at the back of the bridge, is fantastic. It cracks me up every single time. Uh, one, of the, one line that cracks me up uh, is Q says, uh, you know, it is time to end your trek through the stars. I, I watched this episode three times in the last two weeks, and every time I knew it was coming, and I still laughed at it just because it's so ridiculous. <laughs> and he, he loves doing it. He bounces off that K at the end of Trek. You know, mm-hmm. he just, he, Picard obviously, uh, sorry, Patrick Stewart reacts completely straight, but it's just it's time to end your trek. Across the, the stars, he just bounces right off it because he's obviously winking hugely at the camera. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is uh, a delight. Uh, and so, yeah, and, and so Worf, uh, what has happened to Worf? He is, uh, well, it's interesting to see Worf again through these three different time periods. Uh, just because at the first time period, it recalls that Worf uh, looked a little different uh, and also had a quilted sash. Yeah, it's a lovely sash, isn't it? With those fringes hanging down, it's it's kind of like I don't know, it's like something you'd have along the top of your curtains. <laughs> it's true. Uh, it doesn't look as uh, as official or uh, meaningful as his later metallic-y sash. No, it's not as sort of robust and Klingon manly at all. But it, it, as with the characters, it has evolved <laughs> over the yes. time. Uh, and then so he is Worf in, in the past, this Worf who, you know, kind of grumpy and like, uh, someone's attacking us. Uh, in the future, Worf, uh, we find out that uh, the Klingons have uh, destroyed the Romulan Empire and taken over. So there's no neutral zone. Uh, there's only a border between Federation space and Klingon space. And uh, tensions are high. Uh, so high, in fact, that they aren't even sure about the current state of uh, the Klingon High Council. Uh, and they and think, Worf was a, was a member of the High Council, they think, but they think of he course may it, still be, he may not be at, at some point. Uh, and then they find out that he is just a governor, not just, just he is a governor of uh, a small like outpost. A long grey-haired governor. Yes. So, uh, he, he, I think Worf... Uh, the the people who did the makeup and the costumes for this episode uh, deserve a lot of kudos. Worf looks great. I mean, they all look great, but Worf in particular looks uh, with his giant fanned out hair and gray hair. He looks uh, very striking. I think. And they they sort of hollow out his cheeks with the makeup as well, so he mm-hmm. has that kind of gaunt, grim, fallen from grace mm-hmm. kind of look. He actually looks a lot like uh, Dorn does now because he's he's slimmed down a lot. He doesn't have that massive build. That he did back at the time, so no, it's it's a great makeup job, much better than the Admiral Riker makeup job, which is sort of a very TV old person prosthetic kind of look about it. Yes, that you get a, a sense that they were like, oh, we just need to make him look older. And, and speaking of making Riker look older, so there's the Riker probably is the hardest because uh, Jonathan Frakes, his look, he 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 gained some weight as we all do, right? Uh, he also has a beard, uh, so when they they want to do the the past uh, timeline and show past Riker, who looked you know much younger, uh, and he didn't have a beard. Obviously, you shave a beard, you look 
much younger anyway. Uh, they couldn't just have uh, Jonathan Frakes shave his beard off so that they could show him on uh, Farpoint. So they did something very clever, which is they just used some footage of Encounter on Farpoint. Uh, and Picard's like, I want to talk to my first officer. Uh, and so they have this kind of awkward scene where they they use some footage. Uh, and so you see baby Riker. It's so cute. And he's obviously just sort of talking over the comm in the original yes. uh, epi- episode that they took the, the clip from, but they make it seem like he's at least plausibly talking to a view screen instead. Yes. It, it, was, a, it was a good effort. It was a good effort, and I understand why they did it. Uh, but it, it was just, it made me giggle. Uh, and made also made the sense of nostalgia even greater, because to actually see some footage from that episode uh, was was amusing and pleasing. It takes you right back, yeah. And of course, the lovely thing is that um, because, you know, obviously it has to be set in character at Farpoint, so you're immediately, you've gotten rid of Beverly, mm-hmm. Wesley, Riker, and LaForge. Um, it, give, it gives us the opportunity in this to have uh, Chief O'Brien back. Yes, who's always welcome. Oh, he's a wonderful character. We all love O'Brien. We want him to be our sort of uncle that'll come round and fix things when they break. <laughs> That's right. Uh, and we also get, uh, which was kind of shocking at the time, although I realized as I was watching uh, that, you know, the credits kind of spoil the surprise. But Tasha Yar is back. Um, the late Tasha Yar, who, who came back in, you know, Romulan garb a couple of times uh, throughout the, the um, series. But it was nice to see her. Uh, and, and back in, in the Studies Enterprise, of course, as herself. Oh, that's true. I forgot about that. Mm-hmm. And she she sacrifices herself by going over to the other the other ship to help them out, which then leads to the her the, having the the, yeah. the the baby with the Romulan. That's Commander Sela, isn't it? Who then yeah. becomes a foil for Picard. And then you get unification with Spock. It all ties in. It's wonderful stuff. It is wonderful stuff, and it's nice to see Tasha. And you have to think that um, the actress whose name I am now blanking on, Denise Crosby. Yes, uh, she at the end of uh, this first season of. Uh, the next generation she decided she didn't want to be on the next season uh, uh, and, and one imagines she probably thought well this show isn't going anywhere uh, and based on regret. based on the first season's episodes I don't blame her you, uh, can, you can see that decision yeah although she I mean she's done a couple of uh, kind of Star Trek fan documentary mm-hmm. things hasn't she she has, so I think she she may have uh, she might have some regrets, but I'm sure she's living a happy life, uh, and she's obviously willing to to pop in for the the last episode. Uh, so clearly, there's no hard feelings, um, and she does a great job uh, playing good old Tasha Yar. She does, and the reveal for her being is such a beautiful scene. It's it's the I think it's the first time we go back to the past with mm-hmm. Picard, and he's in the service shuttle being taken to. His new command, the first time he's been on board the Galaxy-class ships with Enterprise D's in space dock, and he sort of pops in there disoriented for a moment and turns, and of course it's it's Tasha that's flying the shuttle. It's, it's wonderful because we're sort of, we the viewers are in the same position as Picard. We're thrown into an environment, we're disoriented, we don't know what's happening, and then we get this wonderful surge of nostalgia probably at the same moment that he does. Yeah, it's great. And then there, there are lots of scenes where... Uh, well, not lots of scenes, but one scene in particular where Tashiar and Worf and Picard are uh, in the ready room and they're talking about, uh, you know, doing a security scan because Picard, uh, want, he's decided that he's not going to tell the past crew uh, what's going on mm. uh, because they won't believe him because they just met him and it's kind of a crazy thing. Um, and the only people that really believe him are the present uh, crew 
uh, his, the future people think he's hallucinating, but they're going to do it out of sense of obligation. The past uh, crew think he's just crazy because he's asking them to do lots of random things. Um, and so well, he they're kind of scared enough to go along with it because he's the big frightening new captain. That's right. They they don't want to screw this up. They're on the flagship. Uh, this is the first time for many of them being on a gla- galaxy class starship. Uh, they're they're just going to do what he tells them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he says, "Well, uh, we need to run uh, like a level two security scan. So, Worf, get on that." Uh, and Tasha Yar is like, uh, "Captain, I I'm in charge of security. Shouldn't I be doing that? Unless you you're going to." She gonna... springs to her feet, no less. Yes, she is quite upset because uh, uh, she thinks basically that uh, Captain Picard is going to demote her and uh, give her job to Worf um, <laughs> which uh, you know after she dies Worf does get her job but <laughs> which is the confusion but uh, not yet not she's, yet she's thinking you know damn the patriarchy I'm not going to let this happen <laughs> that's right good job Tasha sisters are doing it for themselves wait uh, right <laughs> uh, I'm sure that's what the writers were thinking as they wrote that uh, scene uh, that song was playing, I'm sure. Uh, Jordy, let's talk about Jordy. I was trying to think of the characters that we've already thought of. So good well, old Jordy. We, we love Jordy. Jordy's the character we see uh, an alternate version of first, I think, because yes. we pop we pop over to the future mm-hmm. uh, during that, that that wonderfully acted scene where Picard and Troy are chatting over tea in his quarters in the present, and then suddenly he's on the vineyard, presumably the Picard vineyard. Um, he's tying up the vines and he's an old man with a bit of a paunch and a sun hat and then we hear from off camera um, Captain Picard to the bridge and it's Geordie's voice and we wonder if we're going to get another quick cut but it turns out that Geordie's actually there and he's he's made the journey from Rigel 7 or something where he lives uh, with his wife and his three kids to come and see his old captain ostensibly just to sort of drop in That's right, he was in the neighbourhood but actually, because he's had the, you know, he's he's not terribly well, and and so on, and it's all buddy, 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 but still with that note of respect, you know, he can't. He's he's wondering whether well, to call him ambassador or captain, right? And and Picard says, well, you could you could try Jean Luc, and he, oh, I'm not sure I could ever get used to that. <laughs> he's like, well, we'll stay with Captain, uh, and, and the, that when we see Jordy, it's a shock because Jordy does not have his visor. That's right. He's got his his sort of mechanical eyes that are actually quite like what he gets in in some of the later TNG movies, but yeah. we don't know that yet by this point. So that's and and we find that he he married Leah Brom, so I guess she got over the fact that he had a creepy relationship with a hologram of her. Yeah, I was never really very happy about that. I mean, they only say Leah, you know. Picard says it was Leah, and then how's Brett and whatever his other kids are called. They, you know, we never get an idea of who that is. But in typical Star Trekky style, it probably is Leah Brahms, particularly when he mentions that she's uh, the head of the Daystrom Institute. Right? You think? Because I, th- I th- so I think it is Leah Brahms. That's kind of sad. You know, because, I mean, Jordy, she was married and you were, you had this kind of holographic mannequin plaything of her, which was weird. It was weird. And, I mean, he's, let's face it, Scott, he's a good looking guy. He, he could, he could find many lovely ladies. Yeah, he's the chief engineer of the flagship. You he's know, smart. he's got impeccable style, fabulous eyewear. That's true. You know, he, he fills out the uniform well. <laughs> <laughs> he could surely find someone else than, you know, this this divorcee that he's got kind of a weird, creepy background with. Yeah, I, I think throughout the season, the series, Geordi uh, was uh, often uh, bad luck at love, Geordi. Uh, uh, it was kind of a, a low-level uh, B story of the, you know, Geordi trying to figure out 
uh, how he can have a relationship, and it never really works out. Yeah, I mean, there were even those scenes with him sitting, like, talking to Gainan, getting advice on mm-hmm. how he can speak to women. And that's, I mean, Wesley Crusher had more girlfriends than Jordy had, <laughs> and that is an appalling thing, with, with absolutely no offence to the wonderful Will Wheaton, if he ever happens to listen to this. But, Jesus Christ, I mean, Wesley had more girls than he had. <laughs> It's, it, it is inexplicable. Um, but at least he got to marry uh, a woman he had a, cre- a creepy relationship with on the holodeck. So I guess that's good. He has kids, and one of his kids is going to Starfleet Academy. So everything mm-hmm. seems to work. And he's a novelist. That's right. Yeah, with a, a main character that was too flamboyant or something like that. <laughs> that's right. Uh, I think, uh, I think the captain liked, liked the rest of it. So, yes. <laughs> Which is is great. And then we get this, you know, the, I think the moment when um, he's trying to figure out what to call Captain Picard sums up their relationship perfectly. Uh, and then Geordi is the first person that uh, future Picard tells that he is having – He's the first person he, Future Picard tells about his uh, hopping through time. And uh, Jordy is like, uh, are you sure you're hopping through time? Or, and it's not just some kind of episode. Uh, well, and and then Picard obviously starts having the, the hallucinations, mm-hmm. which we, we're, we're later led to believe are sort of arranged by Q as a hint that this is all, you know, part and parcel of them still being on trial because it's the, the sort of little post-apocalyptic you know, kind of horrible people from the court that he starts seeing in the field. Um, but that Jordy is also thus the first person to have to actually deal with him when he's having one of his episodes, mm-hmm. as they think it is at that time. And I, th- I think it's actually nice because you get the you get the sense that maybe it's fatherhood that's enabled Jordy to sort of be, well, okay, what do you want to do? You know, he's very sort of calm about it and, well, fair enough, Mm -hmm. you know, takes his arm, let's go and see data, and it just sort of calms him down. And you're you're kind of seeing how Jordy has has developed himself because now he he obviously very much understands how to relate to people and how to deal with difficult emotional situations. Whereas before, he was great with uh, a warp core, but uh, he he was not so good with people. Exactly, Uh, exactly. Um, so yeah, I mean, Jordy probably of all the characters in the future, uh, well, maybe Jordy and Data, who are kind of you know buddies, and uh, uh, someone uh, on the Swoozy who I had on uh, one of my first episodes uh, referred to them as Troy and Oped uh, in space uh, community, <laughs> which I think makes perfect uh, sense. That uh, is an analogy there. Yeah, yeah. they, they yeah, can. They're the two in the future who basically got their stuff reasonably together. Exactly. They're, they're doing all right. Uh, and so mm-hmm. Beverly Crusher is also doing all right, uh, probably better than all right. She is, well... Captain Picard. She's Captain Picard, that's right. She's no longer Beverly Crusher. She is Beverly Picard. Uh, the divorced, so Picard and uh, Beverly uh, have always had this kind of, you know, interesting relationship. Uh, you know, the kind of the will they or won't they kind of deal going on. Uh, and Captain Picard, of course, feels bad because he was the commander uh, of the mission where her husband Jack, died. Jack Crusher died, yeah. yeah. So that's that's a big weight that he bears. Um, and then we, we finally get a kiss in this episode as well. We do, yes. So in yeah. the ready room, very bold move. And I, th- I think she kind of like comes around the desk and sits on the desk, which I thought was maybe another... Uh, uh, sort of a little tie-in continuity with was it the Naked Now or the Naked Time that was the Next Generation one? Hmm. You know, you know the one where there's poly water and it makes everyone act all drunk and Data oh, seals yes, himself yes. into engineering and pulls out all the the optical chips. 
and it's basically a redress of an original series uh, Kirk episode where the same thing happens. And one of them's called The Naked Now and one of them's called The Naked Time. This is also the episode where Data famously sleeps with Tasha Yar. Mm-hmm. But I think Beverly's sort of drunk on the poly water and comes around the desk and does that same thing. So it's the same sort of scene set up in all good things, but obviously, you know, no one's intoxicated and it's a much more sort of tender scene. Yes, and that leads us into thinking, well, maybe there's something here. And then we jump. Uh, well, we always thought maybe there was something here, but they have, you know, affirmed that there's something definitely there, right? Um, and uh, so in, in that scene, Beverly is very upset because uh, at this point, Captain Picard is like, well, you have to scan me because in the future I have this uh, neuromotic syndrome. Uh, mm. So make sure, you know, scan my head and see if it's there. Uh, and so he isn't currently suffering from it in the current time period, but Beverly finds uh, an abnormality in his brain, which could make him susceptible to many syndromes, uh, one of which is the one that he has in the future. And so she's sad because uh, she feels like, you know, she's she's signed his death sentence, basically. That could uh, kind of put the kibosh on any future relationship. Mm-hmm. And Captain Picard, they have this great moment where they have this, uh, they kiss and, uh, and, and Captain Picard says, you know, I, I prefer to think of, uh, he's like, well, why are you so upset? And Beverly says, well, you've been to the future, so you know you're going to get the syndrome. And he says, well, I prefer to think of the future as uh, something that's unwritten. Uh, Neat. A lot can happen in 25 years. And that's, that's the line, isn't it? That's, that's the thing that underscores the, the whole of the episode. Mm-hmm. The idea of how much can change, both forwards and backwards in time. That's right. And so then we find out in the future that they have gotten married and gotten divorced. Um, amicably, it seems, because... Uh, well, she practically giggles when he, <laughs> he walks back onto the bridge of, the, of her new ship, the Pasteur. She does, which I thought was an interesting choice. Uh, yeah, it was a wee bit out of character, wasn't it? It's a wee bit sort of too deferential. I get the impression that Beverly, having, you know... You know, aged and and matured further and all that sort of thing, and being a captain, and even just the way she was at the end of season seven, mm-hmm. she would not demonstrate that lack of sort of uh, you know, dignity or self control on the bridge of our ship. Yeah, I thought that was, I if if I had to pick one moment that I didn't like in this episode, uh, which was a super micro moment, would be that little giggle she does, just because I think yeah, it's a bit juvenile and a bit a bit awkward. Yeah, yeah, but the, the, she recovers from it, and they have a great scene later on, uh, which we could talk about. And then there's this awkward point at which he's on the bridge, and uh, you know she she welcomes Data and Jordy, and it's like a big reunion, uh, and then Captain Picard is kind of you know, sheepishly in the back, because I guess he's not sure how Beverly's going to react. Uh, and then they have to, you know, figure out, and this is a moment that we've all had where we see someone perhaps who's been significant in our life and, you know, things have happened and we've moved on and it's, you you meet again after many years and... Is it a shake hands or is it a hug? What's right. the protocol? What, what are we doing? <laughs> yeah. uh, so that was, I thought, a great little, little touching scene. Um, and then they hug, which is nice. Aww. Indeed it is, yeah. And, yeah, so, and I mean that's that other scene you mentioned, which is the bookend to mm-hmm. the sort of the fighty yes. scene, which is a magnificent scene. I thought that kind of redeemed that previous scene for me. I, I sort of thought, oh, actually, yes, this is Beverly Crusher, because of course what happens is that um, I think the the, the pastor can only remain the Devron's uh, system for so long doing a scan, but they're going to need several more hours than that uh, to complete the scan. But of course, it's very dangerous because the Klingons are around, and Picard is Picard and Jean Luc Picard sort of counters her on her own bridge 
saying, no, 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 we must stay longer. And she basically sort of drags him by the collar, pulls him into the ready room and says, you know, don't you bloody ever countermand my orders on my own bridge. And he starts to, you know, argue back. And then she points out that he would never have tolerated that ever mm-hmm. on his own ship. And she's bloody well not going to either. And he, and he backs down. Yeah, that's that's a a brilliant scene, uh, and it 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 does it re- makes Beverly uh, recover one hundred percent from the the giggling girl on the bridge. Uh, yeah, it's a it's a respectful scene for for Beverly. Finally, I was mm-hmm. I was hoping the first time I saw it, I remember thinking, Jesus, I, I hope she rec- you know recovers from this, and sure enough, they they do they did do her justice. Yes, and and I like her ship. She's a captain of the USS Pasteur, which is a, a medical ship, and so the the it's a cool ship, isn't it? It, it's it a, looks it's very a, cool. a sphere instead of a disc. It's um, on the front. It's based on the the original designs for the original Kirk Enterprise way back in the sixties. And one imagines they have all those extra decks for uh, medical beds or some reason. I'm sure. Uh, and so the, lots, the thinking, lots of holodecks. Yeah, that's right. Holodecks everywhere. Uh, and so they they. Beverly agrees to to ship them into to Klingon space because apparently Klingons are letting medical ships through, um, but we find out uh, that the Klingons are not too pleased that they're there later when they decloak and start attacking the Pastor, uh, which leads to one of my favorite moments in this episode because I am an unabashed lover of the future Enterprise. With the three nacelles and the giant phaser cannons, the I just love that ship. Ridiculous cannon! It's practically a lance sticking out of the front of the ship on I, the underside of the you know the saucer <laughs> section, and it's I, ludicrously overpowered. It makes what it actually makes me think of every time I see it is this is actually another favourite episode. I should have mentioned Tinker Tenor Doctor Spy from Voyager, mm-hmm. where the EMH thinks he has daydreams and thinks he's the captain, and he invents this ridiculous fantasy weapon called the Photonic Cannon that can destroy a Borg sphere in a single shot. <laughs> and every time I see that all-good-thing scene where the Enterprise de-future, de-cloaks and starts firing this thing, I always think, I mean, this is a, a ludicrously super-powered <laughs> weapon you have. I agree with all of that, and yet I still love it. <laughs> Uh, mostly a nice, nice thing to have. I, I uh, played the uh, Star Trek, the customizable card game in my uh, youth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of the most powerful cards was the Future Enterprise. It was very rare. Uh, and if you had it, your opponent hated you because it was ridiculously overpowered. Uh, and it could cloak and it could it shot, you know, it had lots of weapons and lots of shields. Uh, and it went very fast because it had that third nacelle. Uh, or for warp 13. Exactly. You need If you're going to go to warp 13, you need a third nacelle. You do, uh, and so I just I just love it. It's ridiculous, uh, but I love it, uh, and it's it, it plays with uh, you know it's a familiar thing, but it's different. Much like the everything in um, the future timeline, even even the Starfleet insignia is different. In oh the God, well, you, you see, that's how you know you kind of you kind of always have this vague feeling seeing the future scenes that there's no way this is going to turn out to be the actual future because mm-hmm. it's got that classic tale, the alternate com badge. Yes. You know, the outline silver thing on the two kind of gold strips, and it makes a different little kind of sound when Riker hits it when they're in 10 forward and decided that Picard actually does know what he's talking about and there's some kind of paradox. Mm-hmm. That's when you know this is not actually going to come to pass because they've they've changed the com badge. That's right. That, that would not stand. That com badge is a classic. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, indeed, indeed. I mean, I do like I do like the Voyager redesign, but it's still basically the same combat. It's not that pipey, outliney future yeah. plus future design. Yes, exactly. That is a weird design. Although it it does its point of uh, screaming, "You're in the future." <laughs> yes, uh, as it did in. In fact, that they used the same ones in the. What was that episode called? You know the one where I think it's called Future Imperfect. Where Riker mm-hmm. wakes up and they say, you know, you you got sort of bitten by something on a planet sixteen years ago. You've forgotten the past sixteen years, and it's in the future. That episode, where it eventually transpires that it's sort of all a kind of holographic simulation. Um, that one they use, I believe, those same futury combats, just as a wee nod to the savvy viewer. This isn't real. Ah, uh, you know, always look at the details, folks. That's what what we've learned. Um, let me think. So I think we've talked about all the characters. So let's quickly – have we missed any characters? I don't think so. Right? I don't think so, no. So let's talk everyone about, at least a little bit, yeah. Talk about the, 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 the MacGuffin, the central plot device of this uh, briefly, uh, which is – so I already the mentioned – The anomaly. The, the anomaly, yeah. yes. The Q continuum uh, has this anomaly that they have uh, – but the twist is, right, so the anomaly is happening in the present timeline, uh, and it's bigger in the past timeline. In the past timeline, and, I, and it hasn't happened yet when we when we are brought into the story in the future timeline, but it does appear during the course of the story, but obviously much smaller because it's only just happened. So it's bigger in the past, and that's the big mystery. That's one of the two big mysteries. The other one is that Q insists that Picard is the one that causes it. Yes, and so we have to figure – well, not we, but they have to figure out uh, what the heck is going on with that. Uh, I did have one problem with the anomaly, which we could talk about uh, after we talk about the, the plot device itself, which I think is brilliant. Uh, and how uh, – so it's a, they figure out through a variety of technobabble uh, and through a lot of good uh, – so at some point, Picard realizes with Q's help, because Q appears, uh, that he can – he's not facing this alone – uh, and Picard's like, well, what What do you mean? Uh, and then he figures out, oh, I have – I'm spread across three timelines, but I keep remembering. Now I remember what's happening in each. So I can actually use my knowledge from one timeline and when I hop to the next one, I can, you know, affect what's happening there. Mm-hmm. So, Which, of course, turns out to be the whole problem in the first place. Exactly. And then they talk about uh, in the the current timeline, they have a meeting and they talk about, well, maybe – Whatever we plan now is what causes the whole thing to happen. Uh, and then Riker's like, well, maybe not doing whatever we plan <laughs> is what causes the whole thing to happen. Uh, and Deanna Troy's like, well, listen, we can't. We just have to do what we're going to do because we could spend all day talking about how, you know, 14 different time temporal paradoxes uh, and not do anything. And that may be what causes which is, it. Uh, which is at least the second time we've had that conversation in that ready room because of that episode uh, – whose name escapes me, where um, they basically um, discover, I think, it, what is it, an audio transmission or something they get? Uh, and it's it's Picard telling everyone to abandon ship. Oh, and right, right, the day right. keeps repeating, mm. you know, again and again and again and again. Eventually, Data manages to send the number three back to the next time loop to tell him to, you know, go with Commander Riker's suggestion so that two ships don't collide and so on. But they have that same conversation about, should we keep going? Should we second-guess ourselves? 
you know, what does it mean? What's the nature of the paradox? So that's uh, that's also a nice little reference to another one of my favourite episodes. Mm-hmm. This episode's so clever. This episode is. It's it's a clever episode in any timeline, <laughs> <laughs> in any time period. That's right. That's uh, right. And so they figure out basically that they. Uh, so they all are firing. All the enterprises are firing, and the Pastor, I suppose, fire uh, a tachyon beam at the the, the an inverse tachyon pulse. Is what it is. Yeah. Oh, see, there you go. Mm. And uh, paradoxically, by uh, scanning for the anomaly, they in fact create the very anomaly they were looking for. Uh, by the confluence of the three beams at the same point in space at three different points in time, it causes some kind of. MacGuffin. That's right. It, it goes back rips inside. the space-time fabric and anti-time erupts out of it. Anti-time, um, that's, that's exactly what it is. Yes, and of oh, course, um, as we anti- all know. Of course, I mean, anti-time, is, it's obvious in retrospect. It? <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no pun intended. There's, there's, there's actually a wonderful little moment where they, they, they use the fact that Picard's obviously travelling between time periods but can remember and thus orchestrate mm-hmm between the three time periods because what they start by doing the inverse tachyon pulse thing but then they need, they need to get a more detailed picture of the interior of the anomaly so they need a kind of really fancy scanner called a tomographic imaging scanner and in the past uh, Picard's sort of saying you know you know what do we got can we do this um you know and, and data says well yeah you know tomographic image, imaging scanner but it's 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 just theoretical. They're working on it at the Daystrom Institute again, mm-hmm. and we might have one in a few years. And then Ping, he's in the present. He says, "Data, we haven't to have a tomographic imaging scan." I said, "Oh yeah, we got one of those. No problem at all. <laughs> it's al- it's already on board." So it's like the the quickest research and development and shipping process ever. <laughs> yes, it, it's fantastic. And I, and then they do the same with once they figure out they need to turn off the pulses. Uh, Captain Picard's like, "Okay, I, I'll uh, you know." Next time I'm there, the first. Thing I'll do exactly, and he does it, and sadly that does not stop the anomaly. As we find out, it's an anti-time eruption, and when time and anti-time meet, much like when matter and antimatter meet, things blow up, uh, and so we it's, annihilate somehow. Somehow, it's, it's it's not the main concern of the episode, so we should not spend too much time thinking about what happens. But uh, it is believable and, and basically understandable and it sort of sets the, the you know the dramatic structure of the episode in motion so exactly. it's, it's it's lovely it's very efficient and it's very clever because since it's anti-time as it goes back into the past it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and we have a scene where q says well you still need a hint don't you and so he he being q uh takes picard uh several billion years into the past to the very moment in France, where life begins on Earth. Coincidentally in France, <laughs> yes. I mean, that's, I think that's probably up for debate. I'm not sure it was in France, but in, in this episode it was in France. And, and so Picard's like, well, you know, he points to this, uh, Q points to this, this pile of goo, and he says, you know, life is about to happen. Uh, and Picard's like, why, are you, why have you taken me here? Uh, and Q kind of, you know, points his finger at the sky, and Picard looks, and the whole sky is the anomaly now because it fills the whole quadrant at this point in history mm. and it, it's sort of regressive retro evolution effect stops the the amino acids combining which again is yet another parallel they always do it on two different levels because we've seen in the present day time period that you know the, the federation is starting to feel the or at least the enterprise is starting to feel the effects of the mm-hmm. anomaly in the neutral zone because Alyssa Ogawa loses her unborn child 
Yes, which is very sad. And then uh, Jordy uh, starts growing his eyes back. Uh, and so Picard is like, well, at that moment, for you know, the anomaly has uh, disrupted life on Earth from happening. And so mankind and – they, they actually – I wrote a note that they always call it humanity, which I think is very nice instead of mankind. Uh, yes. Because it's, you know, less uh, gender. Uh, well, it's and not gender. No one has gone before. Exactly. Uh, it never exists because of this anomaly, which Captain Picard created because he was looking for this anomaly. <laughs> Bad Captain Picard. Stupid Captain Picard. <sighs> you know, it's a story we've heard a thousand times. I can't believe Captain Picard fell for it. I tell you, the number of times I've accidentally created a time reversing anomaly, Scott, you know, it's. It's uh, almost a weekly occurrence over here. Well, well, luckily, you're the only person that remembers, so... <laughs> exactly. Otherwise, my marriage would be in a lot of trouble. That's right. Thank goodness for the weird properties of time. And that is actually one of the strangest parts of the episode, because there's no connection between the three time periods. And they, they specifically establish this by... You know, when Picard first gets mm-hmm. onto the Enterprise, taking his new command in the past, and he has his wee sort of ceremony where he reads Starfleet orders, um, which are signed by uh, uh, Admiral Nora Sati, who of course was in that wonderful episode, The Drumhead, mm-hmm. uh, which is an excellent, excellent episode with the trial on the Enterprise, and it's, it's basically the McCarthyist kind of episode. Um, but he's seeing the hallucinations or Q trial people, so he declares red alert. Which didn't happen in Encounter at the Far Point, uh, presumably, although those scenes are set before Encounter at the Far Point starts. But then we go back to the present and we're in the observation lounge and he asks Troy if she remembers him declaring Redler and she doesn't. So we establish that the three time periods are completely separate, even though the anomaly expands back through all of them. I never really fully got why they, they, they did that. There's not really... Is there, is there a payoff for the, the minute or two they spend explicitly establishing that later on? I, I don't I don't think there is a payoff, except at the end where he says, I'm the only person that remembers it happens. Uh, mm. And then, you know, we get the whole point that the future isn't written, so they they will not become these bitter, uh, drifting apart people, but they will continue their friendships and have adventures and future movies together. <laughs> And so they figure out, Picard figures out, or, or Data, somebody figures out that they need to do a static warp sh- uh, shell. Shell. I was going to say yeah. bubble, because they always call them static warp bubbles. But they call oh, that them was, shell. That was, that was that other excellent episode where Beverly gets trapped in our wee pocket universe, yes. and the Traveler brings her out. That's a great mm-hmm. episode, which actually has some parallels with this as well. But in this case, it's a static warp shell instead of a bubble. Yes, it's, it's a, a technical detail, but very important. And so they, they figure out they need to go into the anomaly. Uh, with their three enterprises uh, and create these shells, I guess, on each enterprise in each time period, but it's all the same, happening at the same time? I don't know. Um, but they all go in there. Uh, the the I th- past... I think, I think the assumption is that once you're inside the anomaly, you're kind of in a, a sort of shared, no specific time kind of thing, because they make a point of showing right, they, literally everyone's view screen where they show <laughs> each set of two enterprises from everyone else's perspective, just to hammer that point home. <laughs> and everybody is kind of cool with it. I, uh, you would think, that you, especially the people in the past timeline, which they didn't really know what was going on, suddenly to see two other ships that are exactly like yours... You well, think might, that'd be, might freak you out. Yeah, but they're pretty unflappable. Is it? They're, yeah, you know, you know what we're in space. This happens all the time. That's right. It's an anomaly. So anomalous things happen. 
And it made me think of the, you know, the episode where Worf is coming home from a Batleth tournament and he, you know, sort of something happens and he starts flicking between alternate realities and everything mm. changes subtly and eventually it all collapses and you've got hundreds of enterprises. Oh, yes. It kind of reminded me of that, seeing more than one enterprise on the view screen. Yeah, they, that's an image that they like to do uh, mm. a lot. Uh, although I think they do it, not a lot. They do it uh, because it, it is shocking and you're like, what? Uh, and, and if one enterprise is good, three enterprises are twice as good. Particularly that future enterprise. Oh, man, that which, future which enterprise. Which has tail fins on it, by the way. Well, you know, it's for aerodynamics. <laughs> of course it is. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so they, they uh, create a static warp she shell. Um, and, uh, you know, the, it takes a lot of energy. Uh, and two of the enterprises, well, actually all of them, uh, blow up. Uh, and you think, well, that's the end. Good night, nurse. Series over. Everybody's dead. <laughs> Thanks very much, Paramount. That was a depressing end. That's right. Roll credits. <laughs> uh, but no, luckily they managed to collapse the anomaly uh, and everything is right as rain. Back to the current uh, timeline uh, in which uh, none of this has ever happened uh, because uh, Q, I guess, makes it so. Maybe that's also the explanation for why the timelines are not connected because Q says so. He just waves his waves his hands or clicks his fingers, I suppose, as he does. As it, and the little flash happens, and uh, everything is fine. And so he says, "You know, good job." Yeah, the the everything, the screen goes to white, and then we find Jean Luc kind of uh, huddled over. Uh, he's in, got his head in his hands, and he's he's in the the trial chamber again. Yes, and he's like, "God damn it." Uh, and, Q, and we're kind of we're led. To, I th I think that when they did that, we were sort of being led to wonder for a moment if, I mean, obviously we're being led to wonder if he was dead. Mm -hmm. But they were kind of flashing back to that episode, you know, where, where Q does the, you know, I'll give you a chance to change your past and yes. never be stabbed when mm -hmm. you're uh, a cocky the very ensign. first episode of Random Trek was uh, that episode. Tapestry. Yes, yes, and it's an excellent episode. Mm -hmm. um, even if there's some uncomfortable moments with uh, old as young Picard and that. Uh, fellow ensign that he was mm -hmm. get, getting on with that was a yes. lot worse. but he redeemed it with a wonderful scene of him and Q in, in bed together the next morning that was great uh, but yeah they were sort of maybe you know mirroring that point where Picard has this horrified realisation that God is actually Q <laughs> yes and the, the, I think that is an echo back to that that moment. Uh, and Picard in that episode has a great line where he's like, you know, I refuse to believe in any universe where you're God, Q. <laughs> Damn <laughs> right. It's fantastic. Uh, and so, yeah, Q is there and he's like, hey, congratulations, Picard. You figured it out. Uh, for a brief moment, you were thinking beyond your human limitations. Uh, and you have proved to the continuum uh, which one assumes they do this to all species? I don't know. Uh, that you are uh, worthy. You've got to do something to fill up the time. That's true. They have all of time. All of time. Time is limitless, but their patience is not. Um, that's what he says, yeah. Yeah. And that's the, the, what is it he says, that that's the, you know, the main sort of journey for them out here. It's not the, the anomaly and the nebula mm -hmm. and all nebulae and all that sort of thing. It's, it's, what is it, exploring the uncharted possibilities of existence. Yes. And then they do this lovely, wee, cute 
moment where it, I mean it's a, it's a terrible line and it's not even that well delivered where sort of Patrick Stewart looks at him and says Q what you're trying to tell me and I mean it's like fan fiction level writing it's, it's not it's not great but then he sort of he leans forward and of course his magic judge's chair kind of shunts him forward mm-hmm. and he sort of leans in and I mean so his lips practically come into contact with with Picard's ear but then he sort of you know it moves away again and goes uh, uh, you know you'll have to find that out for yourself and away right. he goes. And maybe you'll see me uh, in some of your treks through the stars. <laughs> From time to time. That's right. Just to make it absolutely clear that we've been watching 90 minutes of an episode all about time travel and different times, mm-hmm. you, he just had to say that time to time. But it seems like the sort of thing Q would say. He loves the sound of his own voice. That That is true. If there's anything we know about Q, it's that he loves the sound of his own voice. Hmm. And then, yeah, then we get the scene with the, that we've already talked about at probably the beginning of this episode, the last scene of the episode uh, with the, the lovely poker game. Um, and Wonderful all is scene. right with the world. Yes, it's, it's, a, it's a lovely wee motif they do in that scene where um, the, there are two extra chairs off to the side and mm-hmm. Troy arrives last. So her chair comes in, but there's always that sort of extra chair sitting out there, and then they make a point of you know spreading out the chairs when Picard's arrived and pulling it in. You've got that sense of the you know the circle is complete and so forth. It's a nice wee bit of sort of scenic movement design that reinforces the, the you know the uh, kind of emotional core of the mm-hmm. scene. It's a lovely little touch. Yeah, and there's a we we didn't talk about there's a little exchange between when he says, well, you know, Picard says, I, I didn't want to. Impose on you guys. I know this was your, you know, your own time, uh, and because uh, they were like, "Why well, didn't you ever do this before?" And so Troy says, "Well, you were always welcome." And so that was that's a nice little little uh, moment there. Indeed. And that's the end of the episode. In fact, the end of the Next Generation uh, as a series on TV. Although the, if you look on Twitter. There's a account called, oh. I think it's called TNG Season 8 or mm. something to that effect where they have a sort of whimsical episode summaries in the classic main arc and sub arc <laughs> format and some of it's actually hilarious. So uh, viewers, if you if you haven't seen that, you should have a look. It's quite funny. It, it is and I will, I will link it in the show notes, which I think is the first time I've ever said that on this podcast. So now this show has to have notes. <laughs> Sorry, sorry about that, Scott. No, I'm not trying right. to give you a job for the weekend. <laughs> no, no, it's fine. Uh, so, I mean, we've already talked about this, but I, I, as, as is customary, I will ask you, what did you think of this episode overall? I absolutely love uh, this episode. It is certainly within my sort of ever-shifting top one or two TNG episodes, and it's, it's such a wonderful sort of tribute and celebration of the characters and the structure of the show that by this point we've spent seven years falling in love with. I think it was a perfect send-off and I really, aside from a couple of wee sort of minor dramatic niggles we talked about, I, I really wouldn't change anything about it. I think it's something that can, they can be justifiably proud of. Yeah, I think this is, you know, I, I as I said earlier, I can't, it boggles my mind that they wrote this in three weeks uh, and that it is as good as it is. And I, I think that just speaks to, A, their, the the familiarity of the writers of the material and uh, the actors doing a great job and the familiarity of them with their characters and knowing how to handle uh, shifting between different timelines and uh, different points in that character's arc uh, it was well handled and, you know, the technical stuff is fantastic. Uh, it looks great on the Blu-ray. 
Uh, so if if you if you're anyone's listening and and has a Blu-ray player but doesn't have season seven of the Next Generation on Blu-ray, uh, you should definitely get it uh, because I think it's fantastic. And if you really like this episode, there is a ton of extra stuff about this uh, episode on those Blu-rays. So lots of interviews with Ron Moore and Brendan Braga and uh, people talking about how they figured out the the they originally were going to do four timelines and then it just got too complicated, so they they dropped one. Um, fascinating stuff if you like, uh, you know, the behind-the-scenes look at what's uh, what it's like to put together a TV show. And of course, they did the the sort of big retrospective season seven special feature thing, mm-hmm. uh, Journey, Journey's End, largely focused on this, which mm-hmm. I think Frakes hosts the majority of. And you see some lovely little behind-the-scenes stuff specifically for this episode in there as well. It's well worth a watch. So, and I, I, if it isn't clear, I am in complete agreement with you, Matt, that this is this is one of my favorite, if not my favorite, Next Generation episodes. Um, although it doesn't have one of my favorite character, uh, Lieutenant Barkley, but he wouldn't have made any sense in this episode. So, uh, that's all right. But uh, Reg will return. <laughs> uh, indeed, he does on, on several occasions. He does. Well, Matt, thank you so much for uh, joining me and for this great conversation about a great episode of Star Trek. Scott, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for the invitation and indeed for uh, making this this podcast series. I'm a big fan. Next on Random Trek, The Next Generation's Shades of Grey. 